How have you enabled your infrastructure? Fundamental change over the last five years and partnering with the business is critical. The tools exist on the cloud, change at the rate necessary, secure by design. Network disrupted. Hey, it's Andrew and welcome to Network Disrupted, where IT leaders talk about navigating the disruption in our industry. In this episode, we talk with our guest, Tom Sweet, over at GM Financial, about how he's transforming his QA team into part of a unified engineering team and empowering his team to stay along for the ride. Tom is a VP in IT solutions at GM Financial, and he's got a real focus on lifting people up in the workplace. And to give credit to where credit's due, I'd also like to thank our friends at Linux Academy, or rather, a cloud guru, for introducing us. Tom gets into the tactical weeds explaining how he's doing what he's doing, which is really valuable. Christoph, thanks for that. And before we get into the show, I've been asked to say Tom's opinions are his own and do not reflect those of GM or GM Financial. Let me know what you thought of this episode. You can tweet me at Network Disrupted, leave a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, or email me at andrew at networkdisrupted.com. So Tom, tell me a bit about yourself. Um, I know you're uh, GM Financial and you're very much involved in in the transformation of, of technology, but I'd love to hear it from you. Sure. I started in IT back in 1997. Prior to that, I'd worked in civil engineering, which is traditional engineering, roads and bridges, worked on that big dig in Boston. I had an opportunity to go to NEC, which at the time was NEC Computer Systems Division. I made this career jump because I just was excited about IT. Back then, I was really trying to get what you'd call like a help desk job today. But the recruiting agency recommended I, I get a QA job over at NEC, testing laptops and the Windows 98 and NT4 pre-installs. Right. It's like, okay, I'll, I'll try that. And that was an awesome job. It, it, you go back, it's like one, one of the, maybe the best jobs I've ever had. It was just a, a lot of fun. I get to go to Japan. And I've been in kind of the software development, software QA space ever since. I had an opportunity to go to Microsoft for a couple of years, work on Office 2010 and SQL Server, Kilimanjaro. Went to work in another company called MapTech, which was a software for mineral mining. So think of AutoCAD, but for geology. Right. Uh, and then and they wound up at GM Financial. They uh, needed someone to come in and, and take, take over the, the QA team and help reduce the growth of the QA team, uh, upskill them to more of a software development skill set. And that was in 2016, and that's where I've been ever since. Uh, we had a big project that was in place for about a year and a half. Once that was done, then we really started pushing this transformation, which we'll get into. And it's been a lot of fun. And I've had a lot of personal reward from it because I, I really like investing in people, growing them, and, and helping them uh, become better. That's really one of my passions. That's fantastic. And, 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 uh, and transformation is, is always fun, at least from my perspective. Um, and and nowadays, you know, so critical as new skills are required to deal with with new compute, and and I think that's that's around practice and and process and and skill sets, um, and uh, you know when when I look at it from my perspective, especially on the infrastructure side, I mean everything is becoming software and software driven, and and the quality aspect of that has has changed has changed quite significantly. Um, Mm -hmm. Maybe you can give me some sense from from your perspective on how how quality and and the process and practices around quality have have changed over the last few years. Sure. So 
I'm a, a big fan of Jez Humble. I don't know if you know him, but he's is active in the DevOps space. And he says if you want to improve your quality, you have to go faster. And that may seem counterintuitive, but in order for you to go faster, you must have automation. You must have really good processes in place. And so as we continue to shift the shift left, that means more and more automation. That means better pipelines for our DevOps tooling. We want to make sure we have a template or the uh, a pipeline of pipelines that everyone can uh, implement and make sure that we're all in alignment with the different scanning and security scans or, or sonar cube or check marks or whatever tooling we have in our pipeline. But it's it's shifting left and it's it's moving this concept from uh, finding defects to reducing the introduction of defects. Yeah, I think that's critical. And I think a lot of the processes and tools around that, um, you know, the, you know, build stuff that works and, and that works from the quality perspective of, you know, the functional side, but also, of course, the non-functional side and security related requirements and scalability and performance and, and, um, and, and driving that continuously, right? Yeah, I mean, that's what we really want to get to. Yeah, and, and um, you know, uh, uh, obviously that leaves a gap in, in skills in some cases. Um, and I know, obviously, you know, as you stated before, it's a huge passion of yours. So I'm curious how you, you know, what, what, what's your approach to, to that skill set gap and, and how are you working with your teams to ensure that they have the skills they need so they can help move everything left? Sure. We, we, we're doing an awful lot around that. When I first started here, I had about 135 team members and five were titled automation engineer and the rest were some sort of QA analyst. And when we look today, with total headcount like 117 and 40 software developers and 60 QA analysts. So we're reducing the team size because we're getting more efficient. And as maybe people move to different roles, we're not necessarily backfilling them. But we're hiring software developers in place of QA analysts. The QA analyst is a legacy role, it's end of life, and we're transitioning QA analysts to software developers. We're also hiring software developers off the street. A lot of companies, you know, when I worked at Microsoft, I was called software development engineer and test, and I worked alongside the, the platform developers working in Office 2010. Well, Microsoft has since eliminated the test that role, and everyone's moved towards unified engineering. Well, that's what we're going to do here. So I'm either hiring software developers off the street who have the skills I need and are willing to work in a QA team until it blends into this unified engineering model, which we're moving to. I'm also hiring software developers out of college, and they're excited. You know, we have uh, University of Texas at Arlington is close, UTD, University of Dallas, and we're hiring you know, graduates to come work with us. And then we're also training the QA analysts to become software developers, and we've promoted about 12. Right. We have a pretty intense training program that's internal. Part of what we do is I provide an hour a day for my team to uh, upskill, which is either you know, used for innovation, it can be used for learning, and I ask for this from the CIO because it's important that we reinvest. We have to create this culture of continuous learning and you know, some companies, you know, give this time, other companies don't, but we, we feel it's important to, to reinvest and, and allow team members to get better. So that's fantastic. Providing so, that. so is it, is, do they, um, is there, do, do they need to propose how they want to use that time or, or is it really just left up to them to, to, uh, 
to pursue what they think might be interesting? Well, it's mostly free form, but they have to upskill. So for the QA analyst specifically, they have to learn a coding language such as Java or C-sharp or standardizing them C-sharp and, and potentially Node.js. They have to, and they're gonna have assessments. So one thing I was doing with the QA analysts was I was going to have them do either an official Oracle certification or a Microsoft C-sharp cert you know, provided by the vendor. And then the reason for that was as a, a third party, there's the perception that there's no bias in the exam because Microsoft and Oracle give this exam to all these different people around the world. Whereas when I started looking in depth at those two exams, there was a lot, there were a lot of peculiarities or oddities of the language that I didn't really find appropriate for my team. So we're creating assessments for them that they, they have to meet. And we just had one at the end of February and we have another one coming up at the end of April, which has uh, different concepts such as object-oriented design, figure, inheritance, encapsulation, polymorphism, those concepts. And we're gonna quiz them on that at the end of April and help, help them understand where they're at and, and where they need to go. For the, you know, the software developers who are already in that role, they're, they have requirements for certifications. So they have to do two Microsoft certifications this year in Azure, so they can use that time to get better in Azure for those either the AZ400 or the uh, AZ203 certification, which is programming, or we're also moving towards Docker and Kubernetes. So they can use that time towards advancing their, their knowledge of Docker and Kubernetes. So is there any sense in the team, you know, you know, for instance, um, um, sometimes, so this is happening a lot across many, many different types of teams. And, and um, you know, I'd speak to a lot of people in networking who have, as individuals, have a great deal of skill in what they're doing. And it's not like people who were the traditional QA analyst role didn't have a great deal of skill in what they were doing. And sometimes there's resistance and there's resistance, not because there's not a desire to change. Maybe the resistance is in, um, I mean, the, the, these these individuals have accumulated a great deal of skill in what they do. Uh, they weren't mm -hmm. their intent wasn't to be a software developer. Um, you know, maybe there's fear of change or fear of going from an expert in something to being a beginner in something else. Uh, do you do you mentor and talk to your team about that? Do do they reflect back to you with any of of those sorts of individual concerns? Oh, sure. I mean, that's an ongoing process. The, when you look at the traditional QA analysts that, that I have, some of them come from you know, QA organizations outside of the company. Others came from different business units and they they showed aptitude and desire and they will move into IT as more of like a user acceptance testing type approach. And I'm taking those team members and, and helping them completely transform. That's scary for some of them. And we, we use this ad car approach with like awareness, desire, knowledge, uh, ability and then uh, repetition. So with, I, my job as a leader is to provide them the awareness. Uh, they have to provide the desire themselves. But what I do is I also share with them a lot of what's going on in the DFW area. There's a lot of high tech down here, especially in North Dallas. And a lot of these companies, I'm not going to list them, but they've either outsourced their QA to India or they've gone to more of a unified engineering approach and they've released their QA teams and, and, and laid them off. What I'm telling them is, is we are investing in you. We are providing you with the future. 
and this is what the future looks like. And you can get on a bus or you can find another bus that goes someplace else, but this bus is moving more towards unified engineering and you're part of that. We have a seat for you on this bus. We paid for your ticket. We just need you to get on the bus. And, and for the most part, both of the team members are excited about that. Now everyone's at a different pace, but, but some team members have decided, hey, you know what, I really wanna maybe move to a role in the business and that's fine, right? We'll we'll give them a reference and, and help them find a good path for them. But it, it is hard and it can be, programming can be overwhelming. And now you're talking not only programming, but we're talking cloud, we're talking command prompt and networking and, and a number of different different parts of this job. I mean, the job now is, is, is software development, it's DevOps, it's automated testing, it's networking, it's cloud, if I didn't already say that. There's all these different pieces to it. It's not just one thing. And it's not only one language. It's Java, it's C-sharp, it's Node, it's Angular. And they're gonna have to be able to pick up these different languages. And now we're talking about Go, from Google, Golang. Someone who knows C-sharp, well, he or she just may have to learn Go in the next couple of months to maybe work on a different project. So it's having this culture of continuous learning but being excited about it. And and what we try to tell the team, maybe we got this kind of a joke, it's like keep up with the Cloudashians, not the Kardashians. Because right. uh, we had a we had this meeting, uh, like a staff meeting, and we had some trivia questions, and we had cloud-based questions, and we had Kardashian questions, and like everyone got the Kardashian questions right, but not everyone got the cloud questions right. And it, yeah, I can appreciate that someone knows the name of Kim Kardashian's fourth child, but I also need them to know what platform as a service is and how that differs in infrastructure as a service. Yeah, no, for sure. And, uh, um, you know, but I, I think, I just, just to highlight a couple of things you said, you know, I, I think that, um, yep. that for one, and, and I'm, I'm actually maybe this turns into more of a question. Um, sure. Oftentimes when there is resistance to change, uh, when mm -hmm. people start seeing the effect of the change. And so that might be in their own mm -hmm. skill sets, but it might also be in your ability as an organization to release things faster or, you know, mm -hmm. to, to, you know, the, the massive reduction of escape defects because you had moved things left or, so what sort of, what sort of metrics do you look at and do you use those metrics to sort of create that enthusiasm and drive success? Sure. So we do have a pretty big metrics program that we're, I don't know if we're starting it. We always have always used metrics, but we've used more of the traditional activity or task-based metrics. What we're trying to move to is more end-to-end -end value stream metrics. And in one mistake that, that I guess I'm responsible for is I kept calling them the four DevOps metrics. And I, I should have rebranded them internally as the four value delivery metrics, where it's your... Yeah, how often, how long it takes you to go from checked in code until it gets to the customer, uh, your frequency of delivery, your mean time to resolve, and your, your frequency of change failure. So the four metrics that Nicole Forsgren has in their data DevOps report, we're trying to right. really move towards end-to-end -to -end metrics because it doesn't matter you know, how quickly one person does things, it, it's how quickly you move through the value stream. And for example, in the old waterfall world, it might look really good if a development team dropped their time from four weeks to three, but if it added six weeks to the QA team and then two more weeks to the monitoring team, well, are you really saving anything? I think is no. But if you would, even if 
But if you were to say, hey, look, at the dev team spends one more week and we can save six weeks down downstream, that's much better. But unless you're really looking at the whole value stream, you don't always see those efficiency gains. Oh, no, for sure. And, and I, I really like, um, uh, you know, using that term value and really driving this as value and, and I'm familiar with those metrics and, and, uh, and appreciate them quite a lot. It, it's, yeah, it's our uh, ability to release. It's our ability to get stuff to customers and, um, uh, and, and, you know, the faster we can do that, the, the better assuming we're meeting those quality requirements and, and, you know, so it's all, it's all interwoven. Um, but, uh, so, so are, are there, um, are there, you know, you, you, you set goals over time. Uh, you've set targets on these metrics. Is there a, a drive to, you know, release in a week or, I mean, and I know there's many different platforms you probably work with that have their own historical constraints and other concerns and compliance concerns about changing. But, um, but oftentimes, or do you, do you, do you rally the team towards metrics or it's, it's more of a, um, uh, uh, you know, over, over, arching theme it's an overarching theme because we're still trying to find the right way to collect them because we'll use one tool for our devops pipelines and our task management and such we also have uh, what is that it's uh we also have service now for our uh, change management process right and trying to make sure that we have all these these metrics and we also have different tools for the project intake process so right now we're trying to find a way to actually collect all this data and make sure this data is correct. And then we can start really getting metrics towards that are working metrics and then work to improve them. And as we move more towards, you know, a product-based team model or if some, like Toyota calls it a factory team where you have everyone on the team has all the skill necessary to deliver the product, it'll be a lot easier to focus on. No, for sure. To measure. Yeah, and, and and absolutely, and and you know, I've I have my own share of mistakes in the past where, where you know, the old adage, "Be careful what you measure," um, because you if you don't necessarily know that driving that metric there is going to yield um, overall quality, or 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 driving that metric towards that goal could potentially cause problems somewhere else. Like the example you gave, great. We reduced the amount of time it took to code this, but we've increased QA. So who cares? You know, the net result isn't there. And, and so I think metrics are, yeah. are measuring and metrics are very important. We always need to think about, um, uh, you know, whether or not they, they're, you know, we, we should be challenging their, their usefulness or maybe better said, um, making sure we're looking at the the whole system, you know, the gestalt, like this metric might be getting better, but what's happening in general? Yeah. You know, and getting to that, another point is, I don't know if you know Martin Fowler. He's a a really good programmer, much better than I'd ever be. He's also one of the signers of the Agile Manifesto. He has a blog post about measuring programmer productivity. And he talks like it's really hard to measure programmer productivity. You can't look at lines of code. You can't look at defects because you could have a... Right. So... You know, if you can read his post, it's not that long, but he makes a lot of sense. And so when people say, how do you measure individuals? It's hard, right? You can look at rework, you can look at attention to detail, but it's hard to compare one person to another objectively only through metrics. So, you know, there's always areas of improvement there. Right. 
No, Martin, Martin Fowler is great. And uh, I appreciate his blog and also his, his books. I mean, I think I, I'll misquote this, but like, you know, page one, line one, or maybe it's in the forward introduction of, of his refactoring book is, you know, like if, if you can't test the system, close this book and put it back on the shelf. Um, you know, and, and he's been a proponent of, of, uh, of, you know, driving, driving everything left for as far as I can remember in, in my career. And, uh, and, and certainly measuring productivity of an individual developer by the historical, like, you know, lines of code or something is, is, uh, is in many ways nonsensical. You have to look at, um, you know, you, you have to look at broader things. However, I, I'm not a fan of throwing out all metrics. Uh, things need to be things need to be measurable for sure. Uh, what about different? So, so now, great. I I was a QA analyst and or software developer, and so I, I'm learning either new languages or new practices because now I'm driving. Um, uh, you know, I, I'm testing with code. I'm building software. I'm building software that's built along with everything else. Um, but there's also other skills that are necessary, right? You mentioned earlier security and, um, uh, both in terms of writing secure code, which is important in that test stack as well, but also, um, you know, in ensuring that your, the software itself is meeting security requirements, but also with infrastructure as a code and cloud in general, there's everything from, uh, networking to, and all aspects of networking, um, whether it's, it's uh, stuff near and dear to my heart, like DNS or load balancing or application load balancing. I mean, there's there's these other stacks that have um, you know great deal of um, uh, you know knowledge, sometimes esoteric, sometimes otherwise necessary to understand. So, how do you infuse those different um, knowledge sets in your teams? Do you have cross-functional teams? Are you upskilling in, in non-programming areas as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. So I have, uh, we pushed, I started pushing the certifications in cloud back in 2018. And at that point it was AWS and, and we had about 10. Then in 2019, by April of 2019, it was pretty flat. No one had been certified in anything. And I was talking to my budget analyst and, and saying, yeah, we're going to have to give back some money. We're not using it. I'm like, Ooh, okay. So, I came up with this idea for a contest to send people to Microsoft Ignite, which was later in the year. And then I had to kind of guess like when I'd be able to buy tickets, which I guessed a little bit too late, but I guess by August, I could still get tickets for the November conference. And I came up with this approach to weigh the different Microsoft Azure certifications based on my perception of how hard they were and give people raffle tickets based on how many certs they got. And I opened it up to not only my team, but, the architecture team and, and some other development groups in the org. And I was going to pay for the whole thing. So we uh, wound up sending four people to Microsoft Ignite from the contest. And that really drove about 60 cloud certs. And following that, in October, the Cloud Center of Excellence needed some help because they were creating this new system for our, our public cloud, which had, you know, HubSpoke model had a lot of work, infrastructure as code, the networking, all those pieces. And they say, can I be borrow a couple people for two weeks? I'm like, okay, you can do that. And two weeks later, they asked for two more people. And I'm like, sure, we can do that. And here it is in March. And I have six people that have been down in the Cloud Center of Excellence since, you know, October or so. And they're setting up 
two of them are setting up the new firewalls we just bought. You did right. something where maybe a year ago they couldn't, no one would have considered any, you know, from one from my team capable of setting up firewalls. But yeah, yeah, yeah. there's three people working on the cloud on it, and, and two of them are developers from my team, and, and one of them is the cloud architect, but the three of them are the ones that are setting up the firewalls, and they've done all the, the infrastructure's code and Terraform, and they're really hands-on inside this, and they've learned an incredible lot. So even though the, the certification's good, it helped provide them the base education, but the on-the-job training that they're getting down in that group is amazing. And they're probably going to want, look, it's five months is a long time. They're probably not coming back. Stop kidding myself, right? <laughs> they're down in the center of excellence until further notice. And, and that's been really good. But that, that's actually, they don't want to right. come back. Yeah, for sure. But that's actually a sign of success, right? I mean, you're, 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 <laughs> yeah. you're working with the it team. It proves everything I've been trying yeah. to do. It's a hundred percent. And uh, like, you know, at, at, at my company, we have a, uh, a support team that is, that pushes hard in training in skills and they end up being like, it, it opens up opportunities across the company for them. And so now you see them in professional services or sales engineering or the product development team. Um, and, uh, and, and, you know, it's a, it's a shame when somebody who's great at what they do isn't there anymore but it's way better if they're inside the company in a different position that that is exciting to them and also helpful for the company. So I, I think it's I think it's a great sign of success if if the individuals are creating value outside of your team. Yeah, I mean, and to flip it the other side, what if they didn't want them, right? What if they said, here, take them back. We don't want them here, right? That's not the case, right? They want to keep right. them, so that's good. That's good. Yeah. Yeah, no, that, that, that's so. fantastic. All right. It was really good talking to you, Tom. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you for listening. I'd love to know what you thought of this episode. And I'm all ears if you have a guest recommendation. You can tweet at Network Disrupted, leave a review on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, or email me at andrew at networkdisrupted.com. Disrupted.com.